0: You're listening to KUBU FM, low power, and the voice of Sacramento. You can find KUBU locally at 96.5 on your FM dial, or cable access channel 17 and 18. You can also listen in on the internet at accesssacramento.org. This program is Making Tracks, and I'm your host Dale Steele. Ron Weekly, at this day and time. You can also find more information about what is covered on the show at Dale Tracks dot blogspot.com. And you can contact me there if you have questions or suggestions about the show. It's time for Making Tracks. Today, we'll hear about big decisions coming soon, as the city of Sacramento has requested a $2 million grant. From the Lower American River Conservancy to expand its former landfill and now regional Sutter's Landing Park. This Thursday at 10 a.m. the Conservancy Advisory Committee will make final recommendations on which projects to fund. Sutter's Landing Park and Camp Pollock are in the running. Why are Sutter's Landing Park and other former landfills important opportunities for restoring nature, providing open space, and eventually recreation opportunities? More on that today. We've also got information on bumblebees, shifting baseline syndrome, and California's new biodiversity executive order. Upcoming calendar, native bees of the Central Valley. Learn about their biology, conservation status, and the role of climate change. This will be at the Yellow Basin, February 7th, 7 p.m. More information at yellowbasinorg backslash flywaynight. And go on a mushroom hunt with friends of the riverbanks this coming Saturday, February 9th at 10 a.m. at Sutter's Landing Park. More information, friendsoftheriverbanks.org. Music today, we'll hear Landfill Harmonic by the Recycled Orchestra, which is a young group playing instruments they built from trash. We'll also hear Same Side by Hayride Casualties. And now, head outside when you can. It's time for Making Tracks. Sutter's Landing Park is a natural treasure in the heart of Sacramento. It serves as as a historic gateway to the 30-plus-mile American River Parkway, which itself enjoys more than 8 million visitor days per year. That's more than Yosemite National Park. Friends of Sutter's Landing Park has created a vision a future for the park that offers a unique opportunity to enhance the quality of life of residents today and for future generations. The park could become a legacy project for the City of Sacramento, enriching the livability of our city and making it a destination for families, nature lovers, and outdoor recreation enthusiasts. Sutter's Landing could be a nature park in the middle of the central city, providing habitat for wildlife as well as great access to trails along the American River for people. There exists an opportunity to add to the current park by adding and widening the corridor along the river that supports wildlife and by expanding access for people to enjoy this resource through additional nature trails and by helping to inspire children and their families through increasing opportunities to learn about science, nature, and the history of this important site. There's very little protected open space land along the southern portion of the Lower American River within the city of Sacramento. Sutter's Landing Park provides our greatest opportunity to protect and restore additional lands and to increase public access along this portion of the river. Recently, the City of Sacramento applied for State Prop 68 funds to expand and enhance Sutter's Landing Park along the American River Parkway through the Lower American River Conservancy. They identified this proposal as their number one priority for additional funding. Currently, the Lower American River Conservancy Technical Advisory Committee is reviewing the applications received, which total more than the available funds at this point and the Conservancy Committee will be making a recommendation in February for which grant proposal should be funded. So there's currently an opportunity to show support and speak out in favor of this much-needed funding and the opportunity that it would allow to expand and restore Sutter's Landing Park and truly make it a gateway to the Lower American River Parkway. You can find out more information about this and Sutter's Landing Park in general by visiting Sutter'sLandingPark.org. And the vision for Sutter's Landing Park that Friends of Sutter's Landing Park have created is available there to review, and I encourage you to do that as well. I'm going to share an article with you today that has a lot of application for Sutter's Landing Park, former landfill at Sacramento, as a high priority now to develop for regional park recreation and wildlife habitat and open space. The article I'm going to share with you comes out of the latest issue of Our Big Backyard, published by Oregon Metro, and you can, you, can, I encourage you to check them out. You can read the entire issue at OregonMetro.gov. This article is From Trash to Treasure, Seeding Change at St. John's Prairie in North Portland. Where some see an old dump site, others see special opportunity. Troy Clark is one of those people. Standing atop the highest point of St. John's Landfill in North Portland, Clark can hardly contain his enthusiasm. I love this place, he declared, while pivoting to take in the panoramic view. On a clear day, you can see Mount Rainier, St. Helens, Adams, and Mount Hood. This is a gem, a beautiful spot, with binoculars slung around his neck and a leather-bound notebook in hand. He brimmed with excitement for the hours of birding ahead. Clark's a retired mail carrier and avid paddler, and he's says he spotted 66 species on his best day of birding last year at Smith and Bybee Wetlands natural area, which includes the former landfill. Immediately enthralled upon discovering it, the area several decades ago, he formed the Friends of Smith and Bybee Lakes Advocacy Group. He spends two to three days a week bird watching at Smith and Bybee Wetlands, and he feels a great sense of responsibility to protect it. For 50 years, nearly 14 million tons of trash generated across Portland was dumped into the St. John's Landfill. Metro took over ownership in 1990 and closed it with a landfill cover system. Now Metro is transforming the landscape of the 240-acre site. Through a multi-year habitat restoration effort, a beautiful prairie is emerging alive with native wildflowers and other plants that attract rare birds like the western meadowlarks and streaked horn larks, western painted turtles, and other wildlife. The landfill restoration offers a unique opportunity since there are very few large protected prairie or grassland habitats in greater Portland. Much of it has been developed or sits on private farmland, says Elaine Stewart, a senior natural resources scientist at Metro who is leading the prairie enhancement efforts. When you look at St. John's, you see it as a closed landfill, Stewart said. But if you just step back and look at it, you see this expanse of more than 200 acres of grassland and you think, wow, this could really be special. The vision is to protect the healthy habitat for insects, wildlife, grassland birds. The vision is to provide healthy habitat for insects, wildlife, grassland birds, and pollinators like butterflies and bees. Stewart began the restoration by seeding wildflowers in 2013. The effort is supported in part by voter approved parks and natural resources levies and a federal grant. Approximately 68 acres have already been planted and preparations are underway to seed 75 acres in fall 2020. Last spring, the prairie exploded with color pink meadow checker mallow, white and yellow popcorn flower, peach colimia, and yellow tarweed. By late summer, yellow gumweed a white yarrow stood out. Steward, with help from staff and volunteers, closely monitors the evolving habitat and the wildlife that use it, applying lessons learned in each of the successive plantings. What native seeds are available? What do pollinators need? What plant mix ensures flowers bloom all spring and summer? How do we track grassland birds? Birds are one indicator of a healthy habitat, says Metro senior science analyst Katie Well. Healthy birds mean healthy bugs, and healthy bugs mean a healthy habitat. By that measure, St. John's Prairie is succeeding. I've gone from seeing a handful of species 10 years ago during a bird breeding survey to well over 30, Well said. That's pretty significant for a piece of land this size in the middle of industrial development. She's been happily surprised to see northern harriers training juveniles to fly, a doe giving birth, and an occasional elk following her around the prairie. Well is particularly excited about the night hawks. Staff in recent years have also created habitat and broadcasted recorded vocal loop specifically to attract streaked horn lark, which are federally listed as threatened. Staff happily saw a male lark in 2018. The closed landfill is not open for public access, but visitors should soon enjoy a trail around it. Planners envision a multi-use paved trail from Chimney Park, winding around the prairie and connecting to the 40-mile loop a few miles north near Kelly Point Park. The trail would also connect to the prairie overlook with stunning views over North Portland, the wetlands, and distant mountains. Metro staff are determining the scope of the project, conducting feasibility studies, and hoping to start community engagement on the design process as soon as the fall of 2019. It's an opportunity to get people from very diverse communities to a quiet place with some of the best nature habitat and birding, bird viewing in all of the city, said Alan Schmidt, a senior park planner with Metro who's overseeing the trail project. The proposed St. John's Prairie Trail, paired with the city of Portland's planned bridge over the North Columbia Boulevard, would fill a major gap in the regional trail system. I'm excited about this section of trail because it will be heavily used by people in North Portland and accessed by people all around the region when the full 40-mile loop trail is complete, said Francis Royce, co-founder of N.P. Greenway, a group that advocates for the completion of North Portland's Greenway Trail. Opening the site to the public while there's still an active gas system is a concern, says Mike Gubert, the environmental supervisor at St. John's Landfill. A network of pipes crisscrossed the grassy field of the landfill, burning off the remaining methane gas from the decomposing garbage. Protecting wildlife and public safety will be key, but in overcoming these complexities, a swath of land can transform from a liability to a thriving refuge for people and animals. As a northern harrier swooped low on the prairie's surrounding tree line, Clark, the founder of Friends of Smith and Bybee Lakes, made a quick shorthand notation in his notebook. Marveling at the beauty all around him, he wondered aloud, Did I find this place, or did it find me? And I know what he means from similar experiences at Sutter's Landing Park, as we've talked about before. So this is meant to be shared as an example of ongoing plans and vision at Sutter's Landing Park with some big decisions coming about seeking and acquiring additional funding to expand Sutter's Landing Park. And then future phases would be to develop restoration and complete the vision that Friends of Sutter's Landing Park have been working on for years. I encourage you to learn more about it go to friendsofsutterslandingpark.org.
1: Well, we're going to play um, another song, um, and we want to convey the message that in a society where what seems to be the most important thing are things, or material things, for us, the most important things are people, the hands of people which transform garbage into these instruments and are the hands of these kids which transform these instruments made of garbage and and a beautiful thing in music. Without the people, this is just garbage.
0: Landfill Harmonic by the Recycled Orchestra, which is a young group playing instruments they built from trash. You're listening to KUBU FM, Low Power and the Voice of Sacramento. This program is Making Tracks, and I'm your host, Dale Steele. On Weekly at this day and time. Pollinators are very important. One of every three bites of food that you eat was pollinated, and most of that has been done by bees. So what happens to our food security if bees are in trouble? Well, in the late 1990s, bee biologists started to notice a decline in the abundance and distribution of several wild bumblebee species, and one of them may have gone extinct since then. Now, these bees were formerly very common and and were responsible for much of the pollination within the areas of their range. There are a number of threats facing bumblebees, any of which could be leading to the decline of these species. So the spread of pests and diseases to commercial bumblebee rearing, habitat destruction, invasive species, climate change, all are a threat. But commercial bumblebee rearing may be the greatest threat to at least some bumblebee species. Conservation is possible even in the concrete jungles of the urban city. Many people living in towns and cities are looking for ways to do more with conservation. With numerous species in decline and environmental issues widespread, making a significant difference can be daunting and even seem impossible. But when it comes to problems like climate change and endangered species, where do urbanites fit in? How can those of us living in suburbia and concrete jungles have a meaningful, hands-on positive impact on conservation? That question has been answered for us by Phyllis Stiles. She combined her passion for serving communities and the desire to help pollinators, and she created Bee City USA, an initiative that has grown into a nationwide network of more than 120 cities and college campuses. Bee City USA takes a practical approach to helping bees by fostering a commitment by each participating city to increase public awareness, create pollinator habitat using native plants, and limit the use of pesticides. Its sister initiative, Bee Campus USA, does the same for colleges, but also requires them to find ways to bring pollinators into their curricula and service learning programs. So these cities and campuses not only help bee populations and improve local environments, they also build their own community by strengthening connections between people. After six years of galvanized communities for pollinator conservation, Bee City USA has joined forces with the Xerces Society, which has championed invertebrate conservation for over 50 years now, with just over 80% of the American population living in urban areas, and that percentage is projected to rise. It's more timely than ever to build advocacy around pollinators. In towns and cities. Moreover, pollinators have few habitat requirements, which are simple to provide in small spaces, making them the perfect focus for urban habitat restoration and conservation. So Bee City USA is now part of the Xerces Society and they're going to work together to continue to champion bee cities and bee campuses and build and connect habitats and communities around the country. You can get more information on this project at beecityusa.org or go straight to xerces.org. There's over 73 cities in the Bee City program now, but surprisingly, Sacramento is not one of them yet. Let's see what we can do about that. And likewise for our local state university, CSU at Sacramento State is also not part of this, but these are both great opportunities to engage and practice some real conservation in our own concrete jungle backyards. Shifting Baseline Syndrome. A mouthful for sure, but what is it? Well, I'm glad you asked, because a recent journal article in the Frontiers of Ecology, which is a journal published by the Ecological Society of America, they did a review article on Shifting Baseline Syndrome in their May 2018 issue, and I'm going to share some highlights with you. With ongoing environmental degradation on local, regional, and global scales, people's accepted thresholds for environmental conditions are continually being lowered. In the absence of past information or experience with historical conditions, members of each generation tend to accept the situation in which they're raised as being normal. Shifting Baseline Syndrome, or SBS, describes the gradual change in the accepted norms for the condition of the natural environment due to a lack of experience with past conditions. Consequences of SBS include an increased tolerance for progressive environmental degradation, changes in people's expectations as to what is a desirable state of the natural environment worth protecting, and the establishment and use of inappropriate baselines for nature conservation, restoration, and management. Researchers and policymakers must focus more attention and effort on understanding and planning how to best limit and reduce the results of shifting baseline syndrome. Much of an increasing body of empirical evidence indicating SBS comes from the fishery science world. Mark depletion of fish stocks have occurred due to intense fishing and habitat degradation in many areas, but younger fishermen are often only able to recall less pass abundance than older fishermen. Bird population and many other game and wildlife examples have also been documented. Well, environmental degradation is a key factor, but it's not thought to be the cause of SBS. The lack of natural environment data, the loss of interaction, and familiarity with the natural world are the three major causes. The most immediate consequence of SBS is an increased societal tolerance for progressive environmental degradation, including declining wildlife populations, loss of natural habitat, and increasing pollution. SBS, or shifting baseline syndrome, is also likely to alter people's expectations as to what is desirable and worth protecting of the natural environment. Finally, if policymakers and resource managers have false perceptions of past environmental conditions, they may set inappropriate targets for environmental conservation, restoration, and management. Programs, and there are several feedback loops which allow the consequences of SBS to accelerate. Well, preventing SBS or shifting baseline syndrome requires restoring the natural environment, monitoring and collecting data with public participation, reducing the loss of experience by positive interactions, and public education. No surprises in any of that. Future research should also focus on improving our understanding of SBS by determining what conditions and what scales are most likely to increase it. Finally, At a time when the Earth's ecosystems are being degraded and lost at an accelerated pace, the existence of shifting baseline syndrome poses real challenges for conservation and environmental management. SBS could be a fundamental reason why society tolerates the continuing destruction and degradation of the natural environment and does not always understand or support the need for conservation and restoration efforts to protect our ecosystems. So there you have it. What are we going to do? California is taking action to protect the state's plants, animals, and unique biodiversity with a new executive order. The order also establishes September 7th as California Biodiversity Day each year. Well, California is home to more species of plants and animals than any other state in the country. The deserts, forests, mountain ranges, valleys, wetlands... Woodlands, rivers, estuaries, marine environments, rangelands, and agricultural fields of California provide refuge for a vast array of species, including approximately 650 species of birds, 220 species of mammals, 75 species of amphibians, 70 freshwater fish, over 100 marine fish and mammals, and approximately 6,500 native plants, of which 2,000 or more are rare. Together, the state's plants and animals coexist to create the complex ecosystems of so much of California's people and economy depend. This executive order directs the Department of Food and Agriculture and the Department of Fish and Wildlife to work together to safeguard the existing plants and animals while restoring and protecting habitat across both working and wild places. This action follows steps taken earlier to protect the state's biological heritage, The approved 2018-19 state budget allocated $2.5 million to launch the California Biodiversity Initiative in partnership with tribal groups, educators, and researchers, the private sector, philanthropic groups, and landowners. The steps outlined in the executive order and a complementary California Biodiversity Initiative will improve our understanding of the state's biological richness and identify actions to preserve manage and restore ecosystems protect the state's biodiversity from climate change. This California Biodiversity Initiative and the immediate series of steps identified in it and the roadmap represent a first step. Its success will depend on ongoing leadership by state with collaboration from diverse partners and stakeholders and support and engagement by all Californians. In December of 2017, a group of 26 scientific experts across the state's universities, herbariums, and conservation organizations drafted and signed a historic charter to secure the future of California's native biodiversity. Their short statement describes California's unique role as a biodiversity hotspot, the importance of preserving this status, and the challenges to doing so, and identifies key action areas to achieve, maintain, restore, and preserve the state's biodiversity. The charter document is an inspiration for the principles and actions outlined in the California Biodiversity Initiative and Roadmap, and I encourage you to read it.
1: who we're up against unfold your arms
0: same side by Fossil Fuel Kid. Don't forget to check out my other radio program on KUBU. The Climate Report focuses on local climate actions and more, sponsored by 350 Sacramento every Wednesday at noon. And be sure to tune in Tuesdays at 1 p.m. for Radio EcoShock the latest on science, issues, and authors dealing with climate change and the environment on a global scale. Hosted and produced by Alex Smith. Don't miss it. You're listening to KUBU-FM, Low Power and Voices Sacramento. You can find KUBU locally at 96.5 on your FM dial or cable access channels 17 and 18. You can also listen in on the internet at accesssacramento.org. This program is Making Tracks. Again, thank you for listening
1: out walking I don't do that much talk